This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning Anchor, it's great to see you here. My name's uh, Mitch if I haven't met you and I'm excited to be able to bring the word this morning. Um, I'm from the Burwood Gospel Community. Um, oh, they're all around, great. Um, and I'm super excited to get into Titus. As Brad said, this is um, our last week in the book of Titus and the last week in this series before we jump into uh, our series next week called Follow Me, which is about discipleship. So I'm really pumped for that series, but I'm excited to get into Titus now. And um, last week we heard from Matt from chapter two of Titus about what it looks like for us as individuals within the church to live lives that have been radically transformed by the gospel uh, so that we are noticed by society, so that the, our lives make the gospel attractive, adorn the gospel of God. And, and this week, as we look at chapter 3, uh, Paul really continues along the same vein, and he talks about what it looks like for us to live lives that are counterculturally different, so that the gospel is made attractive. And last week, Matt spoke about what that looks like in terms of uh, individuals within the church, what it looked like for the, the older men and for the younger men and for the older women and younger women and so on. And this week, Paul Paul's focus is more on uh, the collective church as a, as a body. What does it look like for the church as a whole to live these counterculturally different radical lives? And I was, um, I was reading an article this week about um, someone who I think really exemplifies what that looks like uh, in a really beautiful way. And I'm sure we've probably all almost heard of this person. And that person um, was Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham was a, a famous American evangelist who just passed away uh, earlier this year. And he was famous mostly for his crusades, which are these huge preaching rallies, uh, which lasted almost over, I think, about six decades, where he would just come and preach to huge amounts of people all over the world. And um, he's been one of the most influential people uh, in, the, in, the Christian, in the Christian faith. He's actually been called uh, one of the most influential Christians of the 20th century. I think that's the title that he got given, and um, I can attest to that. When I was at my previous church, it's called St. Philip's in Taramara, you chat to, to anyone over the age of 50, and you probably have a one in two chance that they were converted to Billy Graham crusade. Just so many people that have been influenced by this man. Um, but what I think is so remarkable about him is not so much uh, how gifted he was as an evangelist or the success of his ministry. What I think is remarkable about Billy Graham is the fact that he lived a life of such integrity and such radical countercultural difference to the world around him. And his life just adorned the truth of what he preached. I think that's what's so remarkable about him. And one of the most amazing things about Billy Graham were these rules that he had put upon himself with regard to his ministry. He had these four self-imposed rules that he placed upon himself in order that his life would have integrity and represent the ideals that he preached. And these four rules uh, were these. The first one was that he would maintain complete financial transparency. So he wouldn't handle any of the money at all that was raised at these rallies and these crusades that he did. The second thing was that he would avoid even the appearance of sexual immorality with regard to how he related to women. And what this meant was that he went to almost what seemed extreme ridiculous lengths to make sure that he was never even in a situation that could be considered compromising to maintain his integrity in the public eye. The third thing he did was avoid criticizing other pastors and ministries at all times. And the final one was that he would be painstakingly honest in all of his public life about his ministry, which meant that he had a, a team of people that were constantly working with him to make sure that he was accountable with the statistics and everything that he produced about what they'd earned and all these money as well all the other parts of his ministry. And he stuck to these rules. 
And whether you agree with how they play out or not, what I think is hard to argue with is the fact that this man was clearly committed to maintaining his integrity and living in a radically countercultural way. And he did it so that people would see his life and they would see that it was different and that it would make what he preached attractive. And what was so attractive about it was the fact that it was so clear that what he preached actually had the power to change his life. What he preached actually had the power to change how he acted, and that was attractive. And what I think is so amazing about Billy Graham is that, unlike so many other Christian leaders that were in similar positions, Billy Graham never had one accusation or scandal against him in terms of his character. Not even an accusation. There was nothing in his life or ministry that could be called into question. And, and sadly, this, um, this hasn't been the case for so much of the, the history of the church. Too often the, the gospel has been rejected because of the way that Christians have acted and their hypocrisy. I mean, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that may be one of the reasons that uh, you have issues with Christianity. How many stories have we heard of, of Christian leaders who have said that they believe in Jesus and acted in such horrible ways, that have uh, acted in ways that do not uh, represent the beliefs of, of Christianity and what Jesus modeled for us? How many stories have we heard of people's lives who believe in Jesus but look no different to the world around them? How often has that been true of us? I know as I reflect on my life, I can see it's certainly true of me a lot of times. As we look at this chapter of Titus, we see that Paul is calling the church in Crete and calling us to live radically different lives that have been transformed by the gospel so that our message is made attractive to the world around us. And it's not as though the gospel isn't attractive in itself. It is a beautifully attractive message. But Paul is calling us in terms of how we behave as a community to adorn what that looks like, make it attractive with our lives. And Paul in this passage talks about what this looks like in two major spheres of our lives. And he talks about what it looks like for us as the church, which are also members of secular society. How should we behave as members of society to adorn the truth of the gospel? And how should we behave as members of the church within our own community? What does that look like? How do we make the gospel attractive through our lives? So we're going to jump into Titus 3, uh, read the first couple of verses. But before we do, I'm just going to pray for us and pray that God would give me the words to say and that he'd speak. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us through it. Lord, we thank you that uh, you haven't left us alone. You haven't left us without instruction. And Lord, we just thank you so much that um, yeah, you do work powerfully, Lord. And today I ask that you would be preparing our hearts for what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that you'd be using me as your vessel to speak your words faithfully. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified above all. Transform us and change us uh, to make us more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. And so Paul begins his instructions to the church in Crete with how they're to behave as members of secular society. And the first thing that he instructs them to do is to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. So he starts with the easy stuff. Submissive to rulers and authorities. And immediately we start to feel a little bit uncomfortable just reading that, don't we? For most of us Australians who are relatively anti-authoritarian, we don't like to be told to submit and be obedient to authority, do we? That starts to rile us up a bit. But the reality is, is part of Christianity is, is being someone who is under authority. The definition of a Christian is someone who has put Jesus as Lord in their life. 
And when we accept Jesus into our lives, we don't just accept him as our savior, but we accept him as our king. And at one level, I think to be anti-authoritarian is to refuse the truth of the gospel, that we are all people submitted to an authority, the authority of God. And here we have a command from God in his word to submit to earthly authorities as well. And if this is hard for us, just imagine how hard this would be for a Christian community in the first century, who the government at the time was one that persecuted and oppressed them and even killed many of its members. I was doing a little bit of research, and at this point in history, when this letter was written, the emperor of Rome was actually Emperor Nero. I'm sure many of us have heard of Emperor Nero, and if you've heard of him, it's probably because he was such a crazy guy. He's known for being insane. The time that this, this letter was written, Nero was rumored to have actually started this fire, this enormous fire, and then blamed it on the Christian church just so he could have an excuse to crucify them and to burn them alive. I mean, even the, the secular authorities at the time thought this guy was crazy. Uh, everyone thought this guy was insane. And even the historians that weren't Christians said, yeah, this guy just started a fire so he could kill Christians. He was insane. So imagine being told to submit to that type of government, how hard that would be. And notice that um, when Paul says this, he doesn't say anything about how the, the governing authorities are to behave in this scenario. He doesn't add a little caveat saying, be obedient to the governing authorities so long as they rule justly and fairly. He doesn't say that. He just says, no, be obedient and submissive to the authorities. And you can imagine how hard this command would have been for the church in Crete at the time, who's suffering this intense persecution. But why does Paul give this command? To the church? Why does he call them to submit to this authority? Because it's not out of a fear of how the government will respond. I mean, you read through all of what Paul has written, and it's very clear that he has an extremely robust theology of who's in control of this world, and it's not the government. It's not out of fear of how they respond. It's not so the church will just be good, you know, little citizens that don't get noticed and go under the radar. No, it's almost the opposite of that. The reason that they're called to be submissive to these authorities is so that they will be noticed. And so they will be noticed. The reason they're called to be submissive and obedient and courteous and gentle is so that the culture will look at them and see that there is something radically different about the way these people are behaving. And that, that radical difference is not just a radically rebellious spirit to the authorities. It's a radically submissive, gentle, courteous spirit that respects the secular authority that has been put in place. And it's not simply so they will be noticed, but it's so they'll be noticed and the gospel is made attractive. So that their lives would adorn the gospel and make it attractive to everybody around them. That's why he calls them to be submissive to authorities. But what does that look like for us today? That's the question we have to ask. And I think in order to answer that question, it's important to talk about what it doesn't look like. And what submission to authorities for us today does not look like is just blind obedience to the government doesn't just mean blind obedience to the people that are in authority over us. What Paul is commanding here is to be obedient to the, the governing rules and authorities only so long as we remain obedient to Christ. We remain obedient to Jesus, who is the, the king of all kings, and then we remain obedient to the authorities as well. I think there are heaps of examples throughout the Bible and through Scripture of what this looks like for us. And one of my favorite examples of this is uh, the, from the book of Daniel, from Daniel himself. And Daniel um, was an uh, Israelite who had been one of the people that had been captured by Babylon as Babylon took Israel into exile. And his people were forced into a country that uh, was not their own, exiled there, forced to be slaves and refugees. And Daniel and a, a few of his friends are called to be servants of the king at the time. 
and they're called to be his slaves and, and to serve him. And what's so amazing about Daniel is that he just humbly submits himself to this authority that has oppressed his people, that has destroyed his homeland and carried everyone off into this foreign nation. But he still submits to their authority. And he submits to this authority and works so hard that he's actually noticed by the king. And it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, I think it might be on the screen, it says, Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So this is a guy who has been oppressed and forced into a country that isn't his, but he's submitted to the authorities that God has placed him under and witnessed so faithfully and done so well that not only has it been noticed, but he's been noticed to be so successful that he was almost placed in a position of such high authority over this whole nation. But then what happens later on is that the king, King Darius at the time, issues a decree and he says, everyone must pray to me and you're not allowed to pray to anybody else but me. And Daniel's been submissive up until this point, but as soon as he gets told that, he refuses and says, no, I'll only pray to my God. And then he gets thrown into the lion's den and God rescues him and everyone sees that his God is faithful and that the one that he has remained faithful to is the true God. His life was one of beautiful submission and witness to the world around him, but his witness was to the truth of God above all others. I think it's a beautiful example of what this means. But for us today, what does this look like? What does it look like for us to submit to these authorities? I think for us, realistically, submitting to authorities looks uh, a lot more like paying our taxes. I think it looks like obeying the laws of the land. It probably looks like not texting while driving, not lying on our tax return. I think this means not speaking evilly about our government and slandering them. I think it means not slandering our politicians. It means being obedient to the laws of the land, even if we may not agree with them. And of course, there will be times where we disagree with our government. And this is not saying that we don't fight for what is right. We may disagree with our government on their refugee policy. We may disagree with our government on their policy surrounding foreign aid. There might be many things that we disagree with our government about. And this call to submission doesn't mean that we just forfeit our brains and live in complete submission and not fight for what we believe in. But it does mean that we don't slander our government. It does mean that we behave with humility and with gentleness and with courtesy. It does mean that we respect the bosses that we've been placed under at our work. It means that we're obedient to them, not slandering them behind their backs, not being unnecessarily combative. It means we do go out of our way to serve them and to love them and make their job easier, and not as a way of sucking up to them, but a way of showing the truth of what we believe that our consistently holy lives would preach the gospel to the people around us as clearly as our words would. That's what we've been called to. So Paul calls us to submit to these authorities, and then he moves on to his next instruction in, in verse 1, and he says, Be ready for every good work. The church is to be ready for every good work as a way of witnessing to the world around him. And this theme of good is one that's come up a lot in the book of Titus. Now, elders are required to be lovers of good. Titus... Uh, is called by Paul to teach what is good. We're called to, to model what is good, be ready for every good work, be devoted to good, and that so our good would be a faithful witness to the truth of the gospel. And earlier in the, the book of Titus, Paul has warned the church uh, of the danger of having lives that don't do this, of the danger of having lives that don't have this integrity. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he says this, talking about the false teachers. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, 
unfit for any good work. So Paul says that these false teachers have been saying that they believe in God, but their works have denied the truth of what they believed. And Paul says that is dangerous and that is not what we're called to. We're called to the opposite, in fact, that our lives would be a testament to the truth of the gospel, that people would see our good works and see that the gospel is true. That's what we've been called to. So what does that mean? What does it look like for us to be people who do good, who pursue every good work in society? A couple of weeks ago, I was... um, uh, me and a couple of the, the members of our GC went to go see a documentary, and it's called For the Love of God. It was from the, the, by the Center, of Public, Center for Public Christianity. And this documentary is all about the history of the church, the best and the worst parts of the church. Uh, and as we were watching this documentary, it became really clear that the, the church functions at its best when it's doing good in society and caring for the poor and caring for the marginalized along with preaching the word. And it also became really clear as it showed the the countless times that the church has failed to do this. The countless times where the church has damaged people and abused people and hurt people in the name of God. But as we watched, there was one story uh, that particularly stood out to me as an example of what Paul is talking about here in Titus. An example of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus that is radically committed to doing good. And that's the story of William Carey. Now, William Carey was a a missionary in the early 1800s from Britain, and he went to to India to share the good news of Jesus with the people. But as he got there, uh, he became aware of some horrible cultural practices that were going on, and one of those in particular was this practice called sati. And what this process entailed was that whenever a a husband of a, a wife died, the widow was expected to voluntarily sacrifice herself to go and be with the husband. It's a horrific practice. But what they believed was that a woman was only a a true woman when she was with her husband. So if the husband died, then the woman was to go and be with him. And so Kerry became aware of this practice and naturally he was horrified by it. And so despite the significant danger that it caused him, despite the, the hostile oppression that he was facing, he fought hard against this campaign. He fought to protect the women that were being forced to do this. He fought against it with the government until eventually the, the, the practice was outlawed in 1829. That's after about 20 years of campaigning. But he fought hard for the good of this society. And that was not the only contribution that Kerry and the other missionaries made when they were in Serampore in India. During their time there, they outlawed infanticide, the killing of infants. They outlawed the killing of lepers, and they introduced state funding for education for all people. All of these things are radical social reforms at the time that were so countercultural. But what's so special about the story of William Carey and his team is that they were deeply concerned with the gospel of Jesus and preaching the word, but it was their commitment to the gospel of Jesus that meant they were committed to doing good for the society. It meant that they were committed to seeking the benefit of all people because they understood the message of Jesus. They witnessed about the salvation they'd received in Jesus by their lives and by their actions. But it doesn't have to look so dramatic to have such beautiful effects for the gospel. I'm just going to take a minute to to honor a couple of the brothers and sisters here at Anchor, and that's Scott and Ruth Buchanan. I think Scotty and Ruth are such a a beautiful example of what this looks like in an everyday context. These are people who have committed their lives to helping the poor and helping the marginalized, so much so that they're going to the Philippines later this year to do exactly that, to help people who have been oppressed and marginalized and preach the truth of Jesus. But what's so special about Scotty and Ruth is is not uh, just the fact that they're going to the Philippines, it's the fact that their whole lives have been lives that reflect this truth even now 
Their lives reflect this desire to do good and to love people because they've understood the gospel right now. And my wife Sarah and I had the pleasure of living with Scott and Ruth all of last year. Uh, and it's, it was beautiful for me to just be able to witness their love for people just by living with them. And the amount of times that I would hear conversations with them, uh, between them, and talk to Scott about these conversations, about how they could be doing more to love people and love people. And uh, Ruth kept on wanting to, you know, have more compassion kids and keep on, I think they had like 17 or something, and want more compassion kids. And Scott would be like, no, we have to eat as well. But Ruth would be like, do we have to eat? God will provide. But they just had this beautiful heart, this beautiful heart of desiring to seek the good of people around them and seek the benefit of all people so that their lives would be a witness to the truth of what they've received. And there are so many other examples that I've heard of this happening in the anchor community as well. I've been so encouraged by the, the Burwood Gospel community over the last year as they've sought to, to do exactly this and love one of our brothers, Shane, who's been coming here. And Shane can't uh, make his own way to church, so members of the Burwood Gospel community have been on a roster driving him to church uh, every week just to show love to him and do good in society. And that has been a beautiful witness to the people that live with Shane and to him as well. It's a beautiful example of what this looks like to be ready for every good work. And what does that look like for you? What does that look like for you as a GC and as a triplet? Have you become too comfortable with just doing Bible study? Have you been pursuing every good work as a community? Because I know for, for me it's so easy to be comfortable with just hanging out and doing community at GC because we love our GC so much and it's so enjoyable just to do family and to, and to look at the Word together and worship. But I feel like we've lost our zeal and our devotion for doing good. We've lost our passion for helping the poor and the marginalized and loving those that God loves. And Paul has called us to do this as a way of witnessing to the world around us to the truth of what we believed, what we believe. He calls us to submit to authorities, calls us to, to do good, and there's a whole bunch of other instruction that Paul gives in, in the verses one and two of this passage, but we don't have time to go into each of them in detail. Uh, but he calls them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy, to behave in such a way that the world would look at us and see something beautifully different and see the truth of what we believe has had the power to change us. But we're going to move on in the passage and read the next little bit and hear about why Paul has called us to live in such a way. So let's read Titus 3, 3 to 8. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. And so we have this beautiful explanation here in Titus 3 of the gospel. And Paul backs up his commands to, to live in such a way and to pursue good in society with the reasons for why we do this. And we've been given this picture here in these verses of what we were. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. And then this picture of what we've become, which is heirs to eternal life. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we've been moved from slavery into sonship. From foolishness to becoming 
heirs, gifted with eternal life. And having received such a beautiful gift, we should desire nothing more than for all people to experience what we've experienced. Paul says we were once like the world still is. And now that we have been changed, the implication of that is that we should desire so much to live in such a way that would usher in the transformation that we've received in the lives of others. That our lives would be so attractive because of their godliness that people would see that we are different and want the same and experience this beautiful change. And I think there are some really beautiful parts of this, this succinct gospel presentation that Paul gives us. Uh, I think one of them that's really important for us to notice is in verse, part, in verse 5. Paul says that God saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And this, has, this is so important for, for this passage, because this whole section of Titus, and in fact the whole book of Titus is so focused on how we behave and focused on doing good. So Paul goes out of his way here to remind us that we're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by anything that we do or our behavior, but we're saved by the, not by works done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy. So there's no danger for us here of thinking that we can contribute to our salvation in any way. Paul goes out of his way to show us that we're saved purely because of what Jesus has done. And he explicitly reminds us of that. That's the basis for our, save, for our salvation, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the basis for what has brought us from slavery to sonship. And that's the basis for the response that our good work should come out of. And then Paul goes out of his way to emphasize this in some more language. And this is pretty unique for Paul in the New Testament, uh, the next couple of phrases. Because at the heart of his gospel presentation, this phrase, Paul, uh, he only uses this phrase, sorry, once in all of his writings in verse 5. And that phrase is that God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of Holy, the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is, is talking about here is regeneration, which is the part of salvation in which the Holy Spirit gives us new life, or he gives new life to a person. And that's so important because this regeneration is the basis for our salvation. Without the Holy Spirit's regenerative work in us, we can't come to faith. And when Paul refers to the renewal of the Holy Spirit, what he's referring to is the, the doctrine of sanctification. That's the basis for our good works, when the Holy Spirit progressively makes us more like Jesus, renewing us. And that's why this passage, in this, in this passage that's so focused on, on doing good, Paul's gone out of his way to show us that our faith is the basis of the Holy Spirit's regeneration in us, and our good works um, come from the Holy Spirit's renewal of us. We're so dependent on God for this, to be regenerate, to have this faith, and we're dependent on God for the good works that we do. Paul's gone out of his way to show us that we can't contribute to our salvation. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we can live a life in response to what that looks like. And so then Paul goes on and asks the church to insist on these things. And he says to insist on them because they're good and they're profitable. And then he goes on to talk about why this is important and how they should behave within the body of Christ, within the community of the church. He's talked about what it looks like for us to behave as, as the church, which is also members of secular society. And now he goes on to talk about what it looks like for us to witness as how we behave as the church. So let's read the next few verses from Titus chapter 3, verse 8. And he says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels 
about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so Paul asked them to insist on these things, which the gospel message that he's just said, insist on that gospel because it's excellent and profitable for people. And then he goes on to say things that are the unprofitable and useless. He calls the church to avoid controversies and genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, contrasting these things with the trustworthy saying that he's just said. But why should they insist on these things? Well, Paul is showing that one of the priorities of the church must be unity. The unity of the body is a priority for Paul and for God. Our whole lives are to be witnesses to the truth of the gospel and our lives are on display for the world to see. And if the world looks in at our community, which we call a family, and sees division and disunity, then there's something wrong. We're called to witness to the world with how we love one another. Jesus said that the world will know who his disciples are, but the way that they love one another. And if the world looks at our family and sees division and disunity, then we have a huge problem. And so Paul commands the church here to be unified and to avoid division. I believe this is part of what it means for us to adorn the gospel of God with our lives. The people would see our unity and see the love that we have for one another and see the truth of the message that we preach. As we read this passage, I mean, Paul is, is not messing around here. This is some strong language that he uses. We can see how highly he holds the unity of the church is important. In verse 10, he says, a person, For a person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That is some strong language. If someone is divisive, warn him once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with him. Clearly, this is such a priority for the church to be unified. And notice that that instruction doesn't exclude leaders of the church. This is not a way of protecting the leaders of the church. That They might be like, this person is disagreeing with me. They're being divisive, have nothing more to do with them. What Paul is saying is that if anybody in the church is divisive, whether they're a leader or not, they need to go. Strong language. However, what Paul is, is not saying is that if you just keep disagreeing with someone, then you have nothing to do with them. The kind of person that Paul is talking about here is not someone who um, is just disagreeing with you about a secondary issue. This is someone who is consistently preaching a false gospel. This is someone who is preaching something that contradicts the trustworthy saying that he's just said, the truth of the gospel. However, Paul is still concerned with how we relate to one another on secondary issues. He's still concerned with people causing division around issues that may not be classified as false teaching as such. In verse 9, he says, The church is to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. The priority of the church is to insist on the truth of the gospel and avoid false teaching, but we're also called to pursue unity when it comes to secondary issues as well. And what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to pursue unity in this area? I think that means two things for us. I think the the first thing that it means is we need to be not, not be unnecessarily divisive. That means that we care more about the unity of the body than our own pride. It means we care more about loving one another than winning an argument. I know I need to hear this more than anyone. I love theology and I love reading it. I love talking about it. I love discussing it. But I know in my heart, I also love winning arguments and I love being right. And I'm sure many of us are the same. And that should never be our goal. 
That should never be a higher priority than the unity of the body. We're called to love one another before we're called to agree on everything, all the secondary issues. Rather than seeking to correct one another, we should be seeking to love one another. And what a beautiful picture that would be if the world looked in at us and saw that despite our disagreements and despite our differences, we clearly held the unity of the body as a high priority. Imagine if they looked at us and saw how clearly we love one another. What a beautifully attractive community that would be for the gospel. I saw a beautiful example of this uh, on Friday night with uh, Josh McHale and Stevie organized the worship in the graveyard. And that was a, a picture of people from different denominations who I'm sure disagree on a lot of things, but all agree on the fact that Jesus is Lord, come together and worship together the one Lord. What a beautiful expression of what it looks like to be a unified body that preaches Jesus and preaches love for one another above all other things. It's a beautiful example. Imagine what the... What would happen if the world looked at the way that we behave with our lives and the way we present ourselves on Facebook and instead of seeing people arguing all the times about secondary things, they saw our love for one another and our pursuit of unity. Imagine what a beautiful, beautiful image that would be for the world around us. And the second thing that I think this means for us is that we, we do pursue theological clarity. What I mean by that is that we don't pursue unity at the expense of what is right and biblical. It's important for us to maintain the truth of the gospel on all issues. So I think it's important for us when we see one of our brothers or sisters persisting in something that we believe is unbiblical and untrue, we gently try and love them and correct them and guide them back to the word. Theological clarity and right understanding are important as well. But it doesn't mean we can't have unity. They're not mutually exclusive things. Paul is not anti-correction, but he is anti-quarrel. Unity is the goal of how we are to behave in the church. And the purpose of why we do that is so the world looks in and sees that our lives adorn the truth of the gospel and make it attractive. As we, um, as we finish up, I think it's so important for us to be reminded of why we're to do this, why we're called to live in such a radically countercultural way. Paul's given us a a beautiful model of what it looks like to live as members of society and what it looks like to live as members of the church. But we're not just given these instructions uh, so that people will like us. We're not just given these instructions so we can try and restore the reputation of the church in the eyes of the world. The reason that we're called to live in such a way is to be a testament to the truth of what we believe. We're called to live in this way that will be noticed to be radically different so that people will see the truth of the gospel and not only see us, but see Jesus through us. That's the goal of the way we're called to live. Our lives are to be a mirror to our words, that people will see our integrity as we preach what is true and we preach it with our lives as well. God's saved us not by works done in righteousness, but through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's given us new life. And by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we can do this and live in such a beautiful way. I wonder what that looks like for you. I'm gonna pray in a minute to to close, but uh, in a minute, we're gonna respond in a couple of ways. We're gonna stand and worship God as a a response to what we've heard. But the, the prayer team will also be up the back and maybe on the sides. Uh, they'll be wearing orange lanyards. And if you would like to pray with them about anything, uh, they would love to pray with you. If you'd like to pray about what it looks like for you to be living this radically countercultural life, they would love to pray with you about that as well. And we're also uh, going to respond with giving, and the, the giving basket is going to come around. 
Now, if you're a member of the Anchor family, please give generously remembering what God has given you in Jesus. But if you're a guest here, please just let those pass you by. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna respond in those ways. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much that you died for us and it was nothing that we did, Lord, but it was completely your work. And we thank you that you promised to renew us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would do that in us and that you would help us to live in such a radically different way, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would make our lives so radically different and beautiful that it would make the truth of the gospel attractive to everybody around us. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this beautiful, beautiful truth in the gospel. And we pray that you would transform us in Jesus' name.